Well, there's a story of a wise man. He threw his name into a lottery and his name got picked and he wins a Ferrari. Always nice to win a Ferrari. And his friends came to him and said, you are so lucky. And he said, well, maybe, maybe. Well, it wasn't long after that, he's driving his new Ferrari and a drunk driver slammed into him. He ends up in the hospital. His friends come to see him. They say, you are so unlucky. And he looked at his friends and said, well, maybe, maybe. What was shortly after that, his entire house slid into the sea. His friends came to him and said, you are so lucky. You were in the hospital when your house slid into the sea. And you can see how this story would unfold, and basically the point of the story is this. We need to be slow to speak when we look at situations and circumstances. So this morning we're beginning a new series on the apocalypse. Now that word apocalypse comes out of Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. Sometimes it's translated apocalypse, the Greek word, or sometimes it's translated revelation. The revelation, the apocalypse of Jesus Christ. God, through the person of Christ and John the Apostle, is going to reveal some things. And a lot of people avoid reading the Apocalypse. They avoid reading this book of Revelation because it's filled, filled with symbolism. And that, that's some of the power of it, is that the Apocalypse is written so that it will grab your attention. It'll force you to ask questions. It will dig into your heart and you'll say, what is he trying to say? But because we have to wrestle with it a little bit, a lot of people just put it aside, and they miss out on what God wants to say to us. And so as we begin this new series, let me just say a little bit more before we read. And we're not going to be studying the whole book. I want to dive in to what many people would say are the main section or the main division of the entire book. And so we'll be in Revelation 12. But before we even open the scriptures this morning, let me just say a little bit about the idea of the type of literature that it is. Now, when we say type, I think some of you understand what I mean, is sometimes we read things and we're not quite clear on what it's saying. So let me give an example. Psalm 98, it says this. It says that the rivers are clapping their hands and the mountains are singing. Now when you read that, and it's in Psalm 98, it's poetry. It's a poem. It's a song. And so you know, I hope, that rivers do not have hands. Rivers do not clap. But it's an expression, it's a way to show or say something about nature and the energy and passion and drive that God embedded in nature itself, right? So, so we know that based on the type of literature, a little bit of how to interpret it. Now, when Jesus told stories, that's another type of literature. We call them parables, right? We call them short stories. 
Now we know when we read these parables that Jesus often drew these stories from life and experiences so that people could identify with them. So that as he told the story, they, they could get it. But we knew, we should know, that most of these stories might have an element of truth but it's not trying to communicate this is a true story, this definitely happened. Jesus was using these parables to make a point, or actually sometimes several points, that he was, was bringing about. When we read our New Testament, we see another type of literature, a common one, and it's letters, right? So if you get a letter from a friend, and you read that letter, you, you read it with a certain kind of understanding, that this friend is writing to you to say something probably on their heart, something that concerns them. Maybe it'll be sharing a story in there about what's going on in their life. But you read it with an understanding of it's a letter. Well, the apocalypse is a mixture of all types of literature. Not all types, several types. It has certainly letters in it, or what we would call pistolary. It's it's some stuff going on. There's some history in there, so that's really helpful to understand that. But some of the main thrust where we get tripped up is that it is what we call apocalyptic-type literature. It's, it's a form of prophecy, but it takes prophecy that's looking into the future or looking into events. It doesn't even have to be in the future, it's looking into it, and it's trying to help the reader grab hold of what's going on right now or what God is doing. And so it'll use some very graphic pictures. It'll use symbols that will just pop with meaning. Meaning sometimes that people need to read and understand Scripture to figure it out. Sometimes it's, it's rooted in history, but these pictures take prophecy and it just explodes it into all kinds of imagery. We're going to see that this morning. So when we read Revelation chapter 12, we're going to see some of these symbols, some of this imagery uh, come out right before us. So if you have your Bible, if you'd open with me to Revelation, it's the last book of the Bible, the last book of the New Testament. I want to read just a few verses, verses 1 to 6, and then we'll go a little bit further later in the message. But John is the writer here, and we'll talk more about the book of Revelation, uh, why it was written, and what John was trying to say to the readers. But as you're turning there or getting your device set, let me say this. It is not a book only about the return of Christ and all the events that are going to happen at the return of Christ. John was very concerned. It was written about 60 years after the resurrection. And John, as the other apostles, most of them had passed now. John was the last one. They were concerned about the church. They were concerned about people. And they recognized some things happening. So it's a book that's meant to be read right now. Not just thinking about future events. So, Revelation chapter 12, a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of twelve stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven. An enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its head. 
Its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment he was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. The woman fled into the wilderness to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of for 1260 days. Father, you love your people. You love them passionately. As I think of the people online right now, as I think of the people right here, there's just this letter of love that you want us to know some things. Right now, in the 21st century, this day in the 21st century, that we might hear your voice behind it, that we might understand it. Give us eyes to see. Let us understand what your Spirit is doing in our own souls. And so, God, we commit the study of your word this morning. Speak to us as your hungry, hungry people. In Jesus' name, amen, 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 amen. Well, this morning, what I'd like to do as we look at this is recognize that there's several things going on, and so, so nobody gets lost. I will be making two points. The first point is the story behind the story. And the second point I will make is that there is a fierce spiritual battle that breaks out. There's this fierce spiritual battle that we're experiencing. And so now, as we think about this, the story behind the story, let me give a little bit of an illustration so to make sure everyone can follow along uh, with this. When my children were young, I might ask them a question like this, who made you? And they would learn that they were made by God. That was a very simple expression, right? Who made you? Well, God made me. But something happened as they went through life. They get into biology, usually in high school, and they start learning the mechanics of the birth process or the conception process, right? And if you ask someone in high school maybe their first year, and said, how are babies born? You're going to get a whole different lesson on how babies are made, right? So there's a question then that comes out of this. Which one is true? Is it true that God made you? Or is it true that there was a whole nother biological process that took place? And you're going to say, well, well, both are true. And they are. Both are true. But one has a more fundamental ring to it, if you will. It's the story behind the story. So what we're reading today in in Revelation chapter 12 that John's written for us is the story behind the story. So what's the story? Well, if we just look on the surface right now, we recognize that we are in a very, very strange time. There's turmoil. 
not just in our country, but around the world. But let's just zoom in a little bit more on what we're experiencing in our country. A lot of hostility. A lot of hostility. Some of us, as I talk to people, are saying, Pastor Tom, I'm just tired. I'm tired. I'm tired of the conversations. I'm tired of the division in my home. I'm tired of the division in my extended family. There's hostility just ripping through our culture. One writer, Timothy Dalrymple, he wrote this, and it just kind of captures, I think, some of the heart and feel of what we're experiencing. He said, One group within American evangelicalism believes our religious liberties have never been more firmly established. Another group, that they have never been at greater risk. One group of evangelicals he's talking about believes racism is still systemic in American society. But another group of evangelicals push, say that systemic racism push is a progressive program to redistribute wealth and power to angry radicals. He goes on and he writes, one group is more concerned with the insurrection at the Capitol and another group with the riots that followed the killing of George Floyd. And we all feel these divisions, these these polarizing sides. But let me continue. One group believes the Trump presidency was generationally damaging to Christian witness. But another group, that it was enormously beneficial. One group believes the former president attempted a coup. Another, that the Democrats stole the election. One group believes masks and vaccines are marks of Christian love. Another group, that the rejection of the same is a mark of Christian courage. You know what I say? Maybe. Maybe. Maybe God wants to take this historical moment that we live in and speak into our hearts about the story behind the story. Now when John wrote this, there were churches and they were growing. Christians were, were, were just multiplying. Remember I said it was 60 years after the resurrection, maybe up to 65 years after. The church was being persecuted. There were Jewish religious leaders that saw the growth that was coming out, pulling some people out of synagogues and moving them into churches. And and the persecution continued to grow against this new developing religion called Christianity. But not only was there this whole religious dimension going on between Jews and non-Jews, but the Roman Empire, as an empire, demanded that you worship them, at least Caesar. And there was something about Christians that when they said Lord, they didn't mean Lord Caesar, 
They meant the Lord Jesus Christ. And so there was an unsettled state in the Roman Empire as this new evangelical, gospel-driven movement started to grow. And Christians were starting to be ostracized in the Roman Empire. They were pushed out of certain institutions. Things were happening in a way that was causing lots and lots of stress, anxiety, and hostility for the church. And you can begin to see some of the parallels of what was happening in the first century to what is happening today. It's in this context I want you to hear what God wrote to them that applies to us today. And it's exciting as we look at these different things. So as we look at the story behind the story, we recognize that there's something happening. And that is that there's an enemy that's raging. Right? So we read this about a woman. And we read these pictures. And we read about a red dragon. And we read about wilderness. And we read about days. Well, what is all this going on? Well, let me take a moment and, and try to bring us in to what, what John is doing. Because this is where the symbols are, are, are just explosive and graphic and powerful so that when you and I read it we're like whoa what is going on here there's something intense happening so we get this woman verse 1 and it says she's clothed with the sun with the moon under her feet and a crown of 12 stars on her head right and and we read that and we're like what's she talking about now believers and I'd say this for Fox Valley Church. I want this more than anything. I want you to learn to dwell in Scripture. Dwell in the Bible. This picture comes right out of Genesis 37. It's a picture. And it, it's going to start becoming really clear. Joseph... In Genesis 37, we don't have time to look at all these passages, but he gets two dreams. But one of the dreams is, is this picture of the sun and, and the moon and the stars. And when you read that in Genesis, you begin to see really quickly that it's a picture of the sun being Jacob, the father, and the moon being the mother. And in Genesis 37, it doesn't say 12 stars, it says 11 stars. Because Joseph is a 12th star. And pretty soon what we begin to see is that John, as the writer, is bringing us into a picture that this woman is ultimately God's people. If we get a little more specific and, and zero in, he's talking about the nation of Israel. So this woman is clothed and, and he just wants us to use this picture of what happened back in Genesis. How God got this nation started and that it's God's people. And we find out that this woman is pregnant. And we see that there's another sign, verse 3, and there's this enormous 
red dragon. Nobody likes dragons, right? You read through the Old Testament, dwelling in Scripture, and you're going to find that there's these leviathans and there's giant monsters and and the sense of, of evil. And so when we get this picture of this red dragon, we immediately get a picture of evil. Something is happening with this. And you got to let your mind just grow in imagination. Let it begin to take hold of, of this woman. And now there's this dragon. And these symbols represent things. And this dragon represents a personal evil. A person. And look how he's described. Seven heads. Ten horns. Seven crowns. Now, this is where symbolism gets rich. But you don't have to be a scholar. Just dwell in Scripture. And you're going to begin to see the number seven is often the number of perfection. It's the number of finality. And so what we get here is the devil is seen with seven heads. The completion of evil. Heads are a picture of sovereignty. They're a picture of control. So he's got absolute control. Absolute sovereignty over evil. He's talking about the red dragon. And of course he's going to explain who the red dragon is and we'll read that in just a moment. But we we begin to see that this dragon is is in this picture. If we jump to verse 6, we get into the wilderness. And if you dwell in the Bible you're going to find out that the wilderness is a kind of a complex picture, isn't it? Remember when Israel left Egypt and they ended up in the wilderness? You can look at it as a time of testing, and guess what? You'd be right. It absolutely was. But if you also read the wilderness, wasn't there incredible tenderness of God as He led them day by day? By a pillar of fire at night, right? He, 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 he led them. He provided meat for them. He provided manna for them. He gave them the law. So you read the wilderness and all of a sudden you begin to see, yes, it was a time of testing. Yes, it was a time of tenderness. Yes, it was a time of trial. Yes, it was a time of the kindnesses of the Lord. We read this in the Old Testament. Elijah, after his huge experience on Mount Carmel, he flees into the wilderness only to be taken care of by God. Jesus, he himself would slip into a solitary place and sometimes it was what we would call wilderness. So it's, it's a picture And you can begin to see how the picture is because if we read carefully, it says it was a place prepared for her, prepared for the people of God, prepared for this woman by God. And look at the last part where she might be taken care of. And then we get the 1260 days. I just want to bring you into this Real briefly, we'll comment a little bit more as we continue to study uh, these books of Revelation 12, 13, and 14. When you read 1260 days, they're idealizing a 30-day month. 
and you just take that times 42 months and you get 1260 days not complicated math that's why sometimes you're gonna read 42 months and then sometimes you're gonna read time times and half a time well time is one year times is two years and half a time is half a year what do you get do your math we could do this in kindergarten right one plus two three plus a half is three and a half which is 42 months which is 1260 days did I lose anybody yet <laughs> right so so there's a picture here but now let me bring us into the challenge some people want to read this and say it's only about the last three and a half years before the return of Christ and I say why and part of the reason people answer it that way is that not because they're wrong but that they're reading it in only one way the apocalyptic literature is very very symbolic so some people want to take the symbols more literally and some want to take them more figuratively some take them figuratively and want to take them more symbolically right and we get into this mess what I'm telling you is it's not having to be an either or that John was writing to Christians and saying there's going to be times of testing and no, it may not be exactly 42 months, but remember back with Elijah and his encounter with the God of Baal, God small g, and there was a drought for three and a half years. It was a time of testing. Why? Because Israel compromised with the world. Maybe God is trying to say something to us, the church today, how maybe we have compromised with the world. So, as I said, there's a story behind this, and what we begin to see is one of the most graphic pictures, and I'm going to spare you. But let me just start painting the contours of it. We just read there's a woman. She's about to give birth. And now what we just read? Her feet are in the stirrups and you know what I mean it's an intense moment the devil is standing where I don't need to say a whole lot more ready to catch the male child what's powerful about this passage is that it's not so much about Jesus right now as it is about the woman. Because we only get a little bit about the male child right here. The male child whom the devil is standing there between the legs ready to catch. He's going to rule the nations with an iron scepter dwelling in Scripture. You'll know where that came from. And he's taken up to God so let's go back now and finish the story the second part a fierce spiritual battle breaks out verse 7 the war broke out in heaven Michael and his angels fought against the dragon and the dragon and his angels fought back but he was not strong enough and they lost their place in heaven the great dragon was hurled down that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world 
astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of the Messiah. For the accuser of the brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. They triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their own lives so much as to shrink from death. Therefore, rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury because he knows that his time is short. What a powerful, powerful picture that begins to get filled out that this male child who will be ruling, right, is now off the scene. And we begin to see that there's this war. But don't be deceived. You might want to throw a word maybe in here. The battle is not against the devil and God. There's no question who has more power. There's no question who has more authority. When it says he hurled them down to the earth, just imagine God flicking the devil. The battle is against earth dwellers against you you and you online and you anyone that names the name of Jesus that's where the battle is so as we begin to look a little deeper at this let me just say a couple things the devil he rages because he was overthrown and his time is short he is filled with fury it says in verse 12, because his time is short. And so what John is doing is he's bringing us to the story behind the story and saying, in the midst of all that's going on, with all the division going on between Jews and Gentiles, with all the division going on with the Roman Empire, you need to know there is a spiritual war raging for your soul and my soul. The devil fights for keeps. Let me say it this way. If we are compromised with the world, we are aligned with the devil. That's the upshot of this. So now, let me just say a couple things that will maybe pull some of this together. We need to understand the times in which we live. Like the men of Issachar, they understood the times in which we live. Notice I say the spirit of the age. There's a spirit of this age, and it's the idea here that we are in the last days. They started with the coming of Christ. And look what... Paul wrote, he said, Mark, there will be terrible times in these last days. People will be lovers of themselves. 
lovers of money. But let me just hit the red ones. Proud and abusive. They're going to be without love. They'll be without self-control and brutal. And they'll be lovers of pleasure. And there's this whole list, and that's the spirit of the age in which we live. So, when we look at this, we need to understand the times in which we live. And if we're compromised with the world, we're aligned with the devil. Now, I wrote some phrases up there. Because in the polarizations that are happening in the church today, there's this attitude that says, I'm right. If you're on one side, you say, I'm right. I'm not saying you use those words. I'm saying it's an attitude of the heart. My view is the correct view. I know. Exclamation point. Maybe. Maybe. There's division and there's disunity and there's hostility. And the church of Jesus Christ is being divided. It's not so much that we have different sides. It's how we deal with the sides that matter. But there again, we get polarized. I'm dealing with it in the right way. You're not. And again, we have more polarization. Well, how does all this get pulled together? John didn't abandon us in the writing. Look how they triumphed. And let me just close here. They triumphed over him, the devil, by the blood of the Lamb. The blood of Jesus Christ, the cross, is the central piece that holds the church together. It's going to hold the two factions that are dividing us right now. We've got to keep going to the cross. And look what it says, by the word of their testimony. This is verse 11. For they did not love their own lives. So even as we say, I know I'm right, I know my view is correct, there's a humbling that the cross always brings. So it's, how does all this happen? Mysterious work of the Spirit of God. It's when we come to the cross and we say to our brothers and sisters, you're so important to me, and there will be division over what I'm going to say right now, but there's division everywhere. How we handle our differences are key. We're way past the day of sending a text, sending emails. We're in the day where you love someone so much, you say, can I sit down with you? I want to hear your heart. Notice how I said that? I don't sit down to tell you my heart. I sit down to say, I really want to hear your heart. We're going to go to the Lord's Supper right now. And you should have received this. When it says by the testimony of their lives, it's talking about the witness of the gospel.
And so as we take the Lord's Supper today, and if you're online, we invite you to do this as well with us, is we recognize that the bread is representing the people of God, the woman, the church today, the Old Testament people. We're all the people of God. And it's one body. But in order that we could stay together as one body, Jesus' body had to be broken. And so Jesus said, on the night that he was betrayed, where hostility was growing and the enemy was dividing, he said, as often as you eat this, do this in remembrance of me. Let's take it together. Because we cannot escape our own pride. I can't escape my own pride. I can't escape my own self-centeredness. I can't escape my own selfishness. All those phrases, I'm right. My view is correct. I know. Maybe. Maybe. Things aren't always as they appear. I won a lottery. I got a Ferrari. I got into an accident. I was in the hospital when my house slid into the sea. Because we don't know. Because we are finite. We need to humble ourselves and say, I am a sinner. And I need the blood of Jesus Christ to cleanse me. So Jesus took the cup and he blessed it. And he said, as often as you drink this, do this in remembrance of me. Let's take this together. Would you pray with me? Father, Thank you that your love is so great and that your vision to build one people in the midst of disunity, in the midst of hostility, that we could endure, we could persevere by the blood of the Lamb and the story of the gospel. God, what a beautiful picture you you for it. Help us to worship you and express our love and devotion to you over and over. Thank you that you saw our plight and sent your son to die for us. We receive his gift of grace to forgive us and cleanse us from all of our unrighteousness.